Michael, I'm, I'm glad to see that you've escaped your captors and you are now back to the, the lands of audio quality that is consistent and appreciable. I negotiated my release, and uh, I have penance I have to pay later, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's worth it to be back home. What that math do? So you have That's the penance. Either... No, penance, Pen- not penis. Though <laughs> oh. that will factor into the penance. I just thought you were mispronouncing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a connoisseur of penance. <laughs> He's got that woolen mallard he's got to go beat everybody with. Ooh. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't have a comeback for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm dropping shit. Don't, don't mind me. <laughs> Why can't I hold all these lemons? It, What's your motivation? It's a meme. Sorry. What? So tell me about that French press, you hoity-toity fuck. <laughs> I, I've had a French press for a while, but I just really wanted coffee. And then I got to show off, even though this is an audio medium and uh, no one can see it, I have a Bones uh, coffee mug. Yeah, you're holding it the I wrong was... way, fuck ass. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> you can't see the logo, but it's, it's a cool... Well, I... Yeah. This episode of the Disinformed Podcast has been brought to you in part by Bones Coffee. Oh, if only. Bones. It's the most erect you're ever going to be while drinking. Mm-hmm. And how. Yes. I'm drinking the gingerbread... Uh, coffee and it is fantastic. Yeah, I am a an absolute devotee to the Bones coffee as well. We know, but these days I do not have Bones in my cup. I just uh, finished off a little bit of the the old Dank Nick because yes. Mr. Watkins here is is a delight at gift giving, and uh, I, I really enjoyed the Dark Sky. So thank you for that. Honestly, if uh, you just find what works and then you just repeat it until the mm-hmm. stops liking. <laughs> That's how you got and married. Then- you're not wrong. We are legally and that, bound. Boys and girls is how an orgasm is caused. What's that? Speaking what of that is. funny, isn't that just a funny word for being bummed out? Yeah. Speaking yeah, of exactly. orgasms, Heil comes slingers and welcome to another stirring installment of this the disinformed podcast. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Michael. I'm Courtney. And Courtney's also coming to you live and direct from the sewing room today, so let's all <laughs> yeah, send thought, thoughts and prayers her way. Your, uh, Help! your setup there looks a lot cuter. Well, actually, oh. no, I like the pug better. I like the pug better. Yeah, might have to mix it up. Is Joan out there? No, he's at work, but I figured with the dogs as loud as they were last week to try to mix it up and see if this works better, and so far I hate it, so... Oh, well, Yay. I appreciate it as the editor... <laughs> Yes, Ed, any deadening that you can give to Michael will mm. make him a much happier man. Necrophilic takes, fuck. Oh, oh, ta- oh yeah, Madonna give me them dead here. air. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, speaking of dead air, I have a story to tell you from my travels out in the world while I was gallivanting on New Year's Eve. Uh-oh. Um, oh, boy. Okay. John's official credo that he gave to me that 40 is the new curmudgeon, uh, I'm apparently living that life because uh, this this actually transpired and I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm the only person wearing a mask in this establishment because after everything that has gone on in the last few months, I figured I'm, a, right? I'm not trying. I'm dodging this shit like Neo. Uh, I'm just whipping myself backwards every chance that I get. So... I'm sitting here in this very interesting individual. I'm not going to defame him any further than I need to with this story. Starts asking me questions because I'm not the bass player for this band. So he's trying to vet me by what's my favorite lost character and why. And yeah, so 
After about the eighth question, every time he asks me something, I respond in my normal way. And yes, I have a lower voice. I may have been mumbling and I'm wearing a mask. So there's a lot of inhibitors here to him understanding what I'm saying. And every time I said something, he goes, what? Huh? What? And after about the eighth time, I lost my composure entirely. And I just said, just don't fucking talk to me. Okay, I'm sure there's plenty of other people who can give you more riveting conversation than this happy horse shit. I don't have time for this. At which point, everybody else who was sitting around me at the table, riotously laughing because I just shut that shit down. And he got very upset and stood up and, and left. But uh, yeah, so apparently I am my my real actual self and it's starting to spill out around the seams <laughs> these days because I couldn't help it. Old uh, old graybeard over there has an attitude problem. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's the the quote that existed for the entire evening was yeah, just don't fucking talk to me, okay? Like this isn't going to work out well for either of us. Just leave it alone. I mean, if he wanted to get to know you, he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Way better than which favorite lost character are you? I mean, yeah, I'd say intimately. Had the balls to tell me John Locke wasn't an asshole. I was like, okay. Grow oh, up. okay, what? yeah. Well, now I know what this episode's about. We've got to talk about John Locke. <laughs> I don't know who this is. Uh, anybody who's bald is automatically a prick. I'm just going to say that just right off the top here. It's way too much testosterone and not enough pussy. And and that actor is pretty good at playing assholes. I feel like that's one of his typecasts that he does on, on Indeed. Occasion. Yeah. And yet another person who got to take a shot at Peggy Bundy, and I just... I don't know how to respond. Much like the show, I am lost. Huh. Go figure. <laughs> Just like everyone that watched the show. Also lost, yes. True. <laughs> well, speaking of convoluted storylines and things that folks can't often wrap their heads around, I am very excited to give you today's topic. But uh, for the uninitiated amongst you listening for the first time, our humble condolences. But what we typically do on this glorious show is we delve into random esoteric topics, and in the course of explaining them to one another, we lie about them. That is the shtick. It is a lot of fun, but we do not let you leave disinformed. Oh, no, no, no. We have a denouement at the end of the show where we explain what was lied about so you can amble off and tell your friends. But this evening... We are going to talk about something that I know is very near and dear to John's heart. We're going to talk about Dick. Ooh. Got me a case of the vapors. Philip K. Dick, to be precise. And I is have that a sex move? If only. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, so, <laughs> I have ten lies for oh, you this oh, evening. Oh, come I love, on. Don't lament this. Again, the more lies I give you, the better opportunity you have to guess them, friends. So, I, I mean... One of them is a, a downright layup, and I'm just going to tell you that off the start. And that's going to be the one we're going to miss. Is it that his name is actually Philip K. Pussy? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but if he did, she'd appreciate it. The, the more lies you add, the more chances of us to look like assholes because we don't know anything. Hey, All I have okay. to do is breathe to be an asshole. I live in this world. <laughs> Well, I'm the English major who didn't uh, realize that Milton didn't write Dante Alighieri's <laughs> great work. So, I mean, everybody can be an asshole depending on the day of the week it is. 
That's because Michael's voice was wrapping a noose around your neck and you couldn't uh-huh. think. <laughs> Furthermore, also, thanks to Dr. Michael, who's listening now and enwrapped, that he called you on your bullshit. I'm not you're sure if you saw those comments, Michael. But he's like, yeah, he got that from the other show and also got several of his other jokes that he tried to pass off as his jokes straight from Behind the Bastards. So, Oh, shit. Uh, you've, been, you've been called on your wow. shit, son. You wouldn't okay. expect plagiarism from... A college professor, Michael. Certainly not. Oops, I'm not <laughs> mad. I'm, I'm not like I'm just disappointed. I guess I now have you know? to vet my stuff, my stuff now. Now that we have people listening to the Better Podcast, I was going to say you can't <laughs> constantly refer people to another show and expect that no one's going to take you up on it. I just figured no one listened to anything I had to say, so I, oh, I feel better about it now. You're wrong on all counts, my friend. <laughs> As is the case, indeed. Uh, but uh, speaking of things that could never conceivably happen, we're going to dive into a little science fiction today. But there are few American authors that have impacted the zeitgeist of film and television in the past 35 years more than the visionary science fiction author Philip Kindred Dick. A glance through his... I, I know you were going to say it. But <laughs> yes, that is his middle name. Okay, okay. Yes, I can't dangle. I didn't it in want front of me. to be. I didn't want to be that person, but I was going to be that person. John got very excited. I saw his eyes light up. <laughs> Fucking jumped through the screen like a spider monkey. <laughs> okay, shock the monkey tonight. A glance through his adapted works reveals a treasure trove of sci-fi filmic adaptations, including classics by Ridley Scott, Steven Spielberg, and Paul Verhoeven. The TD... Uh, TD... Who's Paul Verhoeven? TDs! Mm-hmm. Who's, Paul Verhoeven. Who's, who's that? Who that He's is? He's an actor. Or who, a director. Who that is? What what he make? <laughs> movies! He makes That's movies, That's what directors John. do. What kind of movies he makes? If you, if you let me finish fiction. my fucking sentence, I'll tell you, you slack-jawed shit. I like my jaw. It's fine. I like my jaw. Indeed. Well, <laughs> I'll adjust it for you. Uh... <laughs> So, the TV adaptation of his novel, The Man in the High Castle, has enjoyed multiple seasons on Amazon Video, along with an entire series of short films entitled Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. This is also not to omit Blade Runner 2049, Denis Villeneuve's lauded sequel to Scott's film, which was widely considered one of the best films of 2017. In short, and Paul Verhoeven directed the most recent rendition of Total Recall. I believe, if I'm oh, correct. Yeah, I, I saw that oh, okay. one time. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. I'm just yeah. gagging on my own soul here, so forgive me. Mm. Uh, in short, this man is a juggernaut in the concept department. His life, however, was anything but picturesque. So PKD wrote 44 novels and roughly 121 short stories during his tenure as an author, most of which were first published in an array of science fiction magazines and pulp serials. His fiction explored varied philosophical and social questions such as the nature of reality, perception, human nature, environmental impact, and identity, commonly featuring characters struggling against elements such as alternate realities, illusory environments, monopolistic corporations, drug abuse, authoritarian governments, and altered states of consciousness, material listeners of Michael's episodes will certainly be familiar with. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, whether they be spacefaring memory thieves, android-hunting future cops, or Nazi double agents, Dick's characters continue to resonate with audiences long after his death in 1982. The man has been dead almost as long as I've been alive, so something to be said for that. 
So with all of that said, in order to truly grasp the wonder of the author's work, we must first make an effort to understand the man himself and the Herculean struggle he and those around him endured as he whelped these strange, stirring, and striking stories into the world. Everybody with me so far? Yup. This is uh, Harlan Sanders Part 5, in case you weren't prepared. <laughs> oh, Yay, shit. Yay, I know this one. So it is often noted that Dick endured a detached and tragic childhood. <laughs> Philip and his twin sister. Yes, I know this is gonna. We're gonna be fraught with double entendres. What a, so what a just... deliberate way you wrote that sentence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Philip and his twin sister Jane Charlotte were born six weeks prematurely on December sixteenth, nineteen twenty-eight, in Chicago. 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 <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> Michigan. Oh no, he's Chicago. got a case of the Michaels. I'm swallowing it's my happening. own tongue this evening, and I'm looking for it. But speaking of Chicago, since we were just on the topic of O'Hare. Uh, yes, was born in Chicago, Illinois, to Dorothy and Joseph Dick, the latter being an agent of the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, Jane's death on January 26th, 1929, six weeks after their birth, profoundly affected Philip's life, leading to the recurrent motif of the phantom twin in his various works. As a further cause of emotional duress, his parents elected to engrave his name on the tombstone next to Jane's, intending for them to be interred together upon his death, listing the two as twins below an engraved picture of a cat head, which, uh, of course, PKD himself took as an ill omen hanging over his entire life. No fucking duh. You see that? Bullshit? That's going to be wow. your spot when you die next. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> John, you were saying something? Oh, I was saying, is the etching bullshit? No. It, it, there's actually a picture of a cat on the on the grave, which is wow. delightful, I suppose, but uh, odd. I don't know whether or not that was originally put there or whether it was put on after uh, he had grown up a bit. Who knows? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So his time in Chicago in the 30s was largely unpleasant, as Philip was <laughs> an ostracized child. Other boys purportedly threw stones at him frequently while he hid beneath parked cars, growling at them like a dog in the hopes of keeping them at bay. As you do. Yeah. What? Play crazy. That's a, you know, it is the 30s, mind you. So, I mean, we, they weren't really aware of social ills as well as we are now. But the Dick family later moved to the San Francisco Bay area. And there's no joke there, I assure you. Uh, and when Philip was five, his father was transferred to Reno, Nevada for work. Dorothy, however, refused to move, leading her and Joseph to divorce. Both fought for custody of Philip, which was ultimately awarded to Dorothy. Determined to raise Philip alone, she took a job in Washington, D.C. and subsequently relocated there. So, I don't want to move to Reno. Fuck you. I'll move to D.C. completely across the country. That seems reasonable. I mean, like, it's Reno. Like, what else is out there? I mean, so, according uh, to Michael Stipe, you'll be a star. Oh. A star. Okay, then. Yes, indeed. There is a star man waiting in the sky. Uh, so... Uh, Dick stated that he read his first science fiction magazine, Stirring Science Stories, in 1940. Uh, I, I should say, wow, I, I jumped over a sentence there. In June 1938, Dorothy and Philip returned to California after having lived in D.C. for a moment, and it was around this time he became interested in science fiction, reading his first magazine in 1940. Uh, Philip attended Berkeley High School in Berkeley, California, later attending the University of California, Berkeley, as well. 
He and fellow science fiction author Ray Bradbury were members of the same high school class of 1947, but actually didn't know each other at the time, strangely enough. What's that? Bullshit. They did know each other. No, they they didn't know each other. Oh. What are you calling bullshit on, though? That they went to the the same same class. Um, It was not Ray Bradbury. Okay. I'll, oh. I'll give you that one. It was Ursula Le Guin was the other individual. Ray Bradbury actually grew up in Tucson. Really? Mm-hmm. No shit. Hmm. Yeah. See, you say that I throw in a bunch of lies and, uh, you know, you're going to get one eventually. I'm telling you. Well done. All right. So PKD did not declare a major in college, aimlessly taking classes in history, psychology, philosophy, and zoology until dropping out due to issues of overwhelming anxiety. So, zoology? Yes, zoology, strangely okay. enough. A man after your own heart, apparently. I was going to say also same. Wants to walk with the animals, talk with the animals, do everything but fuck with the animals. Also same. <laughs> Is it? It's it no, that's <laughs> legally I have to say yes. Fine point. Okay. So while at Berkeley, though, he, befen- he befriended poet Robert Duncan and poet and linguist Jack Spicer, who gave Dick ideas for a Martian language that he would utilize later on. Philip described himself as an acosmic panetheist, believing in the universe only as an extension of God. So after reading the works of Plato and pondering the possibilities of metaphysical realms, he came to the conclusion that in a certain sense, the world is not entirely real, and there is no way to confirm whether it is truly there. This question from his early studies persisted as a theme in many of his novels. In other words, Dick believed that existence is based on internal human perception, which does not necessarily correspond to the external reality. Subsequently, ugh, man, I am just dying tonight, folks. I'm sorry. <coughs> Subsequently, based on this theme's presence in his work, he is sometimes credited as the grandfather of the concept of existing in a fabricated reality or simulation, based particularly on his work Vulcan's Hammer, which was published in 1960. To offer you a quick plot synopsis, in 2029 CE, the Earth is run by the Unity Organization after a devastating world war. Now, granted, this is written in 1960, so think about the resonant themes that we'll find later on. Unity runs the planet, controlling humans from childhood education onward through the Vulcan series of artificial intelligences, but is fought by the Healer Movement. So there is a religious sect that is opposed to this. Unity director William Barris discovers that the Vulcan 3 computer has become sentient, and he is considering and it is considering drastic action to combat what it sees as a threat to itself. Vulcan 3 has been kept ignorant about information related to the Healer Revolutionary Movement by managing director Jason Dills, who is still loyal to its also sentient predecessor, Vulcan 2. Vulcan 2 fears that it will soon be superseded by Vulcan 3 and previously established the Healers as a movement to overthrow its successor. Ooh, okay. Yes, so it's it's creating a a group of anti-robots to fight the computer that will follow it. 
ultimately, at the end of the novel, Barris uncovers the reality that the bulk of human society are mentally enslaved by the original, and you guessed it, also sentient Vulcan program oh, through man. a lifetime of indoctrination and medicinal dependency. And the healer resistance against their AI overlords always begins with a psychedelic injection to engage and enslave the human subconscious. This shot overwhelms the subject subjects cortical functions forcing them to believe they are contributing to an ongoing struggle for human existence while their bodies merely lay prone unable to resist a machine onslaught the book's end depicts humanity on the brink of extinction with no one left to effectively combat the invading mechanized legions this resolution is the first in a slew of dour dystopian endings Dick would become famed for, and this work in particular is frequently referenced as a major influence for the plots of James Cameron's The Terminator and the Wachowskis' concept for The Matrix originally. Dick sold his first story, Rogue, in 1951 when he was 22. The story involved a dog who imagined that the garbage man who came every Friday morning was stealing valuable food the family had carefully stored away in a safe metal container, offering motivation <laughs> for the dog to attack them. I like that. That's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting, like... But is it bullshit? That it is not exist? bullshit. That was the Good. concept no, of his first work. No, that's true for work. every dog. Uh-huh. I like it. I was like, now I have to just figure out what if they think that mailmen are delivering something intended to harm their owners, and so that's why they attack them. There's got to be rationale here. But uh, following the publication of that work, Philip began working as a full-time author. Now, the 1950s were a difficult and impoverished time for Dick, who once lamented that he couldn't even pay late fees on a library book. He published almost, almost exclusively within the science fiction genre, but dreamt of a career in mainstream fiction producing a series of non-genre, relatively conventional novels. I got a Is severe case true? of the cotton mouths here today, so I'm going to have to keep he, drinking. He... He yes. wrote sci-fi, so and his dream was to just write—I wouldn't mm -hmm. say bland, but just like—he wanted to write, you know, bestsellers. That was really ultimately oh, what okay. he hoped to get to. Okay, the way that you, you worded it made it sound like he didn't want to do anything specific. He just wanted to write fiction. Yeah, he wanted to be mainstream. Okay. Okay. That was really what he was hoping for. Uh, right. Subsequently, like, if you read The Man in the High Castle, in spite of the fact that it does have a decent amount of sci-fi elements, there are, that is one of his most conventional, sort of straightforward novels as far as storytelling goes. Okay. Because some of his stuff goes significantly around the bend. If Vulcan's Hammer gives you any indication. Like, there's a bunch of stuff from Vulcan's Hammer I didn't touch on as well. Like, they have uh, the drones that follow everybody around and monitors all of human activity are owls. And this precedes the original Clash of the Titans. So, like, there's this mechanized owl thing that then somehow manifests itself in this movie. So, so a lot of very weird tendrils of his influence that make it out that you don't really think of until you're exposed to some of this stuff. So, in 1963, a little light finally filtered through the oppressive gloom hovering over his literary career, and Dick won the Hugo Award for The Man in the High Castle, as I just alluded to, an alternative history novel wherein the Axis powers won the Second World War and America was subdivided between the German and Japanese empires. Although hailed as a genius in the science fiction world, the mainstream literary world still was unappreciative of PKD's efforts, and he was mostly relegated to publishing works via low-paying science fiction publishers such as Ace. 
Even in his later years, he continued to have financial troubles and was prone to bouts of despondency. This is evidenced in the introduction to the 1980 short story collection The Golden Man, wherein he wrote, Several years ago, when I was ill, Robert Heinlein offered his help. Anything he could do, in fact. We'd never met, and yet he would phone me to cheer me up and see how I was doing. He wanted to buy me an electric typewriter, God bless him. One of the few true gentlemen in this world. One time when I owed the IRS a lot of money, he and couldn't raise it, Heinlein loaned me the money. I think a great deal of him and his wife. I dedicated a book to them in appreciation. Heinlein is a fine-looking man, very impressive and very military in stance. You can tell he has a military background, even to the haircut. He knows I'm a flipped-out freak, and still, he helped me and my wife when we were in trouble. That is the best in humanity there. That is who and what I love. This is, of course, an apt place to dovetail into the marital discord that Dick suffered throughout his publishing years. <laughs> what? Uh -oh. He was married five times in total, with an array of relationships sandwiched in between. Would you say to... that, uh, that his dick, or that dick went everywhere? It's possible. Dick I mean, Dick least... certainly got around. Dick went I a few, was... few places. You never know where you're going to find or see Dick. He he boldly went where where many 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 others had gone before. Hashtag relationship goals. Indeed. Yeah. Do androids dream of electric dick? Is that what you're trying to drive at here? Vibrators. What? Never mind. All right, we're gonna go back to my original joke that was written in here. I'm gonna pull a Michael. So Yay. my joke is to crib from Ian Malcolm. He was always on the lookout for a future ex Mrs. Dick. That's a good one. I'm glad that you wrote that. Bless you. <laughs> so Philip's friends paint a vivid picture of a man who, when angry, would stamp his feet, wave his gun, and rip off his shirt like the Incredible Hulk. Apparently, Bullshit. That sounds like something your grandfather had done. No. Oh. Uh, my grandfather did dramatically different things in public. Uh, Fair enough. In any event, uh, apparently, uh, Dick and Hunter Thompson would have gotten along famously based on their general <laughs> activities. Uh, by late 1958, PKD was already a modestly successful writer with two marriages behind him when he met the woman who became his third wife, Anne Rubinstein. Uh, however, they bickered perpetually until 1963 when Dick allegedly attempted to push her off of a cliff. When that failed, he then insisted that it was she, instead, who was trying to kill him and had her committed to a psychiatric hospital. Oh, my God. Well. Yes. So, talk about a just and loving experience, I suppose. Yeah. I'm so glad those hospitals aren't around because I feel like I would have ended up in one by now. <laughs> Jonah was calling to get you interred very quickly. <laughs> There's still time. So, uh... Dick then kindled a relationship with a fan, Grania Davis, but subsequently is purported as having tried to kill her and himself by driving his VW Beetle off of the road. What the hell is wrong with this man? It's a pretty uh, intense experience to love him. He has a lot of things. <laughs> it's like dating me, apparently. Uh, he failed, really hard. naturally, uh, but was seriously hurt in the accident and was forced to recuperate in a full body cast for several months. Oof. Then, in 1966, Nancy Hackett, 17 years Dick's junior, became wife number four, and at this juncture, his drug consumption went into overdrive. 
Now, he had abused amphetamine for much of the previous decade, stemming in part from his need to maintain a prolific writing regimen due to the financial exigencies of the science fiction field. Dick had written between three and six books annually for nearly the entirety of his career up to that point. Is that bullshit? No. Holy crap. Damn. Yeah. That's a lot. So, uh, like Stephen, this... Stephen King does like, what, two a year? Uh-huh. And this is him at, at a pretty prolific pace. No, PKD was ridiculous and relentless. That's crazy. Uh, uh, largely owing to the amphetamine. Uh, <laughs> This naturally placed a pretty significant strain on him mentally and physically, as you would expect. So, following the release of 21 novels between 1960 and 1970, these developments were exacerbated by unprecedented periods of writer's block, with Dick ultimately failing to publish new fiction until 1974, a year, we'll discover, burdened with a significant degree of personal meaning to PKD. The wheels on Phil's little red wagon would all but fall off before that time, however. He wrote to a friend, and this is the most Michael turn of phrase I can throw here, Loss of memory. Had Nancy hide my gun. Bees in head. Delusion was that an alien outside force was controlling my mind and directing me to commit suicide. I should probably have given a trigger warning because uh, we're going to have a lot of talk about self-harm and suicide uh, attempts going forward. So friends and neighbors brace for impact. I am inclined to say that the bees is bullshit. The bees is not bullshit, which is why I was the Whoa. most delighted human being on the planet when I found this. I was like, firstly, he's either Michael and Sam Camacho's baby, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, manifesting alien entities controlling their mind, because we've both heard that particular scream before, John. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the greatest time. So, no, no, he had bees in his brain. Now I'm going to have nightmares. Uh, Would you say he had a hive mind? Maybe. Thank you. I needed that. All right. So, uh, Brace for Impact, uh, talk of self-harm and and problematic issues with animals going forward. Uh, By 19... (laughs) Not again! (laughs) I'm kidding. It keeps Uh, happening. (laughs) I hate this podcast! (laughs) You're not alone. Uh, By 1968, he had become obsessed with sheep and was devoted to a small herd that he and Nancy kept at their California home serving as the inspiration for one of his most popular works, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? By 1971, Dick was on 70 pills a day, had split with Nancy in a rather acrimonious fashion, and moved into a grubby house in San Rafael, California. Now, friends recall him having a revolving cast of dangerously odd housemates during this time. One kept loaded rifles under his bed and was sure the FBI was out to get him. Another imagined that aphids were crawling all over his skin and would douse himself with bug spray until he had to be rushed to the hospital. Uh, Are one seventy pills really? Yep. Wow. Oh, the I get spray? into this, uh, and oh yeah, if you've ever seen um, a scanner darkly, he actually memorializes these characters in that story. So, oh. in the opening sequence of the filmic version, there is a character who's sitting and just dousing himself with bug spray because he thinks aphids are crawling all over his body. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he had an interesting cavalcade of folks who were apparently all very into Ken Kesey, but I digress. So. 
Uh, Dick then bought a pistol and prowled around the house at late at night, peering through the blinds. Apparently, he thought he lived at Stardust Ranch, uh, because he would often ring the police to express his concerns, among them that aliens were out to get him, or that he had somehow become an android and was a danger to humankind. That's what amphetamines <laughs> will do for you, folks. Wait, oh, man. he actually thought he was an android? He thought he was like an android. A replicant? Yes. Okay. <laughs> a lot of his work is very autobiographical. You don't really get that until you read some of his uh, general functionality in life. But yeah, there's a lot of him in his work. Okay. So I can see that now. Dick gets everywhere. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> So later that year, in November, Dick returned to his home to discover it had been burglarized with his 1,100-pound asbestos and steel filing cabinet that protected his various manuscripts was blown open as though by a bomb, and his personal papers were missing. Euphoric, he rang the cops and shouted, You see? I'm not so paranoid after all! The okay. authority's response was to ask him if he had staged the robbery as a stunt, <laughs> something that Dick himself later admitted was perfectly plausible, bearing in <laughs> mind the quantities of drugs that he had been taking. Oh my god. Uh, the police ultimately couldn't determine a culprit, still suspecting Dick of having done it himself as a possible act of insurance fraud as well as his ex-wife Nancy attempting to recoup some of her personal belongings, which Philip had refused to allow her access to. So, uh, the man's life is uh, an enigma to crib from Michael. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, he was invited to be the guest of honor at the Vancouver Science Fiction Convention in February of 1972. And this part concerns you, Michael. Uh, legal woes arising from his having left the country while the ongoing investigation into his home burglary are said to have been the foundation of Dick's paranoia about being tracked by the authorities later on in his life. But, within a day of arriving at the Canadian conference and giving his speech, The Android and the Human, so we're seeing this theme all over again, <laughs> Philip informed people that he had fallen in love with a woman named Janice, whom he met there and announced that he would be remaining in Vancouver. A conference attendee, Michael Walsh, movie critic for the local newspaper The Province, or The Province, if you're going to, you know, accurately reflect the Canadian uh, parlance, invited Dick to stay at his home, but was subsequently <laughs> uh, forced, or, yeah, he was tasked with kicking <laughs> Dick out of his house two weeks later due to Philip's erratic behavior. Janice then immediately ended their relationship and moved away. So he stayed in Canada and she got the fuck out. So this gives you an idea of the sort of impact that this man has on your life if you get romantically entangled. Dick's no Ew. good. You, <clears throat> Janice. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, you farted right in my butthole. That's <laughs> And that's why uh that's why she left. Like Indeed. A transplant. Ah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if y'all haven't seen that video you need to go check it out i don't know why i suddenly became texan but yeah y'all need to y'all need to go see that tell you what <sighs> so after janice ended their relationship on march 23rd 1972 dick attempted to dispatch himself by taking an overdose of the sedative potassium bromide subsequently after deciding to seek help dick became a participant in ex calais Oddly enough, a Canadian synanon-type recovery program. Bullshit. Uh, no. 
not bullshit. <laughs> oh, fuck. And was sufficiently uh, recovered by April to independently return to California. I mentioned this also as well. He apparently had some very interesting run-ins with Synanon. In his book, Vallis, in the opening chapter, he has a woman who apparently was referred to Synanon, and she walked into the Synanon house and killed herself while people were watching because they were hazing her as she came in and saying that you don't deserve to be here, you should be dead. And so she just walked up to the top of the building and offed herself. So this is I... the opening chapter of that book. I think I mentioned wow. that at one point. I think you probably it was I think did. it was the first episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, uh there's a lot of very interesting tendrils for everybody that run through this episode, but I was absolutely giddy when I saw this. So he was not very tickled to Synanon, was not impressed with them. But Excalibur apparently did him a, a world of good, so who knows. Maybe there's another episode uh, just waiting for you to unspool it. Probably not. <laughs> All right. But uh, upon relocating to Orange County, California, at the behest of California State University Fullerton professor Willis McNelly, whoa, who, uh, <laughs> boom. whoa, McNelly, so sorry, uh, <laughs> who had apparently initiated correspondence with Dick during his ex-Calais stint, uh, Dick befriended a circle of Fullerton State students that included several aspiring science fiction writers including K.W. Jeter, James Blaylock, and Tim Powers. Jeter, it's interesting to note, would later continue Dick's Blade Runner series by publishing three sequels on his own. Hmm. Which I have not read, but I need to go investigate. Did you say something, Johnny? I said, that's true? That's no no fooling? No fooling, yeah. There are three Blade Runner sequels out there in the world that uh, I've never encountered. You know, also, there's a new anime that just premiered, too. Yes, I had heard about that. So this is topical and timely. Go figure, for once. Uh, I watched the first episode a couple nights ago. It's very interesting. It's it's the traditional Blade Runner thing where I Mm -hmm. have a feeling it's going to take at least another hour or two to, like, show you where it's going. Right. uh, Anyhow. I'm excited to see it. So, PKD then returned to the events of these months while writing his novel A Scanner Darkly, which was published in 1977, uh, containing fictionalized depictions of the burglary of his home, his time using amphetamines, and living with an array of eccentric addicts, as well as his experiences with Ex Calais, which is portrayed in the novel A New Path. Uh, or, or As New Path, sorry. A factual account of his recovery program participation was portrayed in his posthumously released book, The Dark-Haired Girl, a collection of letters and journals from the period. Uh, In February of 1974, Philip was home recovering from dental surgery when he claims to have been suddenly touched by the divine. So be prepared for your new dose of God this week, friends. Oh, joy. (sighs) The doorbell rang. I'm so excited for John. Uh, The doorbell rang, and when Dick opened the door, he was stunned to see what he described as a girl with black, black hair and large eyes. Very lovely and intense. I feel like I'm back reading fan fiction here. Uh, It sounds like fan fiction. Uh Uh-huh. Wearing a gold necklace with an ichthos symbol. She was there to deliver a new batch of medication from the pharmacy. After the door shut, Dick was blinded by a flash of pink light and a series of visions ensued. He came to believe that her necklace shot him with an intelligent pink beam of light, giving him secret religious knowledge, a certain degree of clairvoyance, and a particularly bad case of time displacement. First, 
came images of abstract paintings, followed by philosophical ideas and then sophisticated engineering blueprints. Dick believed the pink light was a spiritual force which had unlocked his consciousness, granting him access to esoteric knowledge. Much like this podcast. Mm. In the following... I feel like his pills were just a little too late to be delivered. Apparently. <clears throat> I haven't heard of withdrawals doing this before, but who knows? Many short, sharp shocks to the head might have caused some problems. but Or 70 pills all on the same day. <laughs> yeah, that might happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, something about the you know minor overdose in your system right now. But... Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? So in the following months, the visions continued. He compiled an 8,000-page journal of handwritten notes in which he documented his visionary experiences, not least the degree to which he occupied multiple planes of existence as, variously, an award-winning novelist, Gnostic Superman, and time-traveling heretic. Still with me? Was he friends with Frank Herbert? Uh, you would think, but no, not quite. So... Firstly, scenes of ancient Rome appeared, superimposed over Dick's suburban neighborhood in California, a local playground phased into a Roman prison. Where there was a chain-link fence, Dick saw iron bars, and where there were children playing, he saw weeping Christian martyrs about to be fed to lions. Por que no las dos? <laughs> si se puede. <laughs> <laughs> Dick saw pedestrians dressed in Roman military uniforms, stone walls, and iron bars. I hadn't gone back in time, Dick wrote to a friend, but in a sense, Rome had come forward. By insidious and sly degrees, under new names, hidden by the flack talk and phony obscurations, at last into our world again. Twice he reported being possessed by Hellenic spirits kind enough to teach him coin or New Testament Greek. These experiences then led Dick to theorize that time had stopped in 70 AD, the year the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by a Roman siege. Everything that happened afterwards was an illusion, and the world was still under Rome's dominion. Dick believed the Roman Empire was embodied in the tyrannical Nixon administration. <laughs> <laughs> No, Damn, bullshit. Nixon and his Caesar-like attitudes. Uh -huh. Nixon is bullshit. No, Nixon is not bullshit. This was during that time frame, friends. Oh, so. this all so that you could flirt. And Watergate was like Caesar crossing the Rubicon. <laughs> Apparently. He crossed the river, Watergate, it makes all the sense. Oh, okay. I totally believe it. You got dick on the brain. Oh, I got dick on the Shane, brain hard. Did you, did you write this just so that you could flirt with Michael for 45 minutes? <laughs> it seems like it, doesn't it? It seems uh, like an God, apology episode. I'm interested. <laughs> Yeah, I like I said, I, I knew that this was going to intrigue everybody. And uh, somewhere, Superfan Steven is loving this up as well. He was very excited to encounter this. So, uh, so <laughs> and of course, the Nixon administration was responsible for the assassination of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King Jr., of course, as emissaries of Rome. No. <laughs> well, yeah. since time is, you know, an illusion, mm -hmm. everything after 70 AD, they could have. As since it, they, it's, yeah. they're not going back in time, uh -huh. and since you know time is going forward to him, hey Stephen King, it's all about him. And he taught us the past is obdurate. Yes, yeah. doesn't want to change. Is a, cause a wheel, mm -hmm. cause a wheel. Yes. <laughs> oh, <God>. Thank you, Eddie. <laughs> all right. So uh, his own role, mind you, in this advanced history was that of an undercover Christian revolutionary fighting to overthrow the empire. 
This Same. is why the delivery. Thank you. <laughs> this is why the delivery girl, who might have been Courtney, who knows, had flashed him the fish sign. Yeah. Ew. It was me. I think this is the fabled mating si- signal that we've been waiting for <laughs> since episode two. Flashed him the fish sign. Uh, some of this information, he claimed, was provided by three-eyed extraterrestrial time travelers who entered his bedroom through a portal of pink light. I shit you not, he was living on Stardust Ranch and just didn't no, know that's, it. No, th- that's bullshit. He said that the, the, the intelligent pink light gave him all this information. Now he's getting it from a secondhand source? It's no, like no, the no. light. It's he travelers said, through the light. The sentence is, some of this information was then imparted to him later by these three-eyed extraterrestrial time travelers. Shit, they were, shit's layers. Yes, three-eyed, three-horned, <laughs> flying purple people eaters. Uh, all of these concepts contributed to his Valis trilogy, which fizz and thrum with allusions to Gnosticism, Greek philosophy, Jungian psychology, and 1960s acid rock. Yes, friends, we will talk about the White Rabbit. But <sighs> there's a considerable difference of opinion among various PKD enthusiasts about what it all meant. <laughs> Was it a psychotic <laughs> break or a religious experience? And how would he or even both? tell the difference? <laughs> <laughs> Why not <Yeah>. both? Exactly. <laughs> All that Dick knew was that uh, what he called his divine madness would come across as mental illness. <laughs> By his own admission, he grappled with paranoia and self-deprecatingly labeled himself a flipped-out freak. The paranoia was probably the result of speed. As we alluded to earlier, Dick used amphetamines routinely to maintain his productivity. So... Friends recalled that his refrigerator was stuffed with bottles of amphetamine pills jammed next to pre-made milkshakes. He would then gulp the pills by the handful, chasing with the milkshakes in an attempt to avoid ulcerated conditions or gastrointestinal distress. He called them alternately his happiness pills or his nightmare pills. (laughs) It depends on the time of day. Yes, or the mood that he was in, or what the flavor of the milkshake was, apparently. Oh, my good God. Oh, this is vanilla. It's a nightmare day, guys. Nightmare day. It's a nightmare day. No bones. <laughs> You're all pointing at me. I don't know who wants to talk first. Courtney. Uh, I think he was actually using the amphetamine to maintain his girlish figure while drinking all those milkshakes. It's a fine point. It's fair. Yeah, it's I mean... all about checks and balances, if we've learned nothing from the American government. Got to do it for the booty. All right. So once his addiction officially went into high gear, so did the paranoia. While walking in the country, Dick had a vision of a vast visage of perfect evil spanning the sky. It had empty slots for eyes. It was metal and cruel. And worst of all, it was God. Ah! That image would stand as the inspiration for yet another of his more impactful works and my favorite uh, novel of his, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Uh, I will skip over this because we're, we're a bit into this and I don't need to explain, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's an interesting uh, sort of fusion of a lot of his other concepts like precognitives and uh, people living on Mars and terraforming the planet, so they have to create okay. small little doll houses and then trip balls and project themselves into that to avoid feeling like they're being overwhelmed by being trapped below ground. I sincerely hope that everyone listening is uh, drunk or stoned or both. Uh-huh. Because you are tripping it 
all out. This is what's funny is I was talking about this. I was like, it's so funny that I was an acolyte of like Hunter Thompson and Philip K. Dick and Chuck Palahniuk having never done a drug in my life. Like all of this is apparently how I'm assimilating what it feels like to be stoned, apparently. But uh, anyway... Could I? Uh, does the book explain why he said that a uh, empty slots were eyes? Yes. Okay. All right. There, that's fine. There, as as there, long as there's an explanation for that, because I was confused. There are three indicators of this sort of grand galactic. So it's it's Palmer Eldritch's. He he went out. It's an astronaut who explored the further reaches of space and came back, but is possessed by some grand cosmic consciousness. And that's one of the ways that it manifests: is that the eyes go vacant, a metal hand appears on people who are infested with that consciousness. Like it's it's an interesting book. Oh, okay, I like got it, it a lot. Got it. But okay. uh, so if you get a wild hair, I'll let you borrow it. I'm sure you'd enjoy it. Ooh. In any event, the divine madness of 1974 was somewhat different. Although it included paranoid elements, the most obvious being the nefarious Roman Empire lurking beneath all the appearances of reality, there was a bit more to it than that. Dick felt guided by tutelary spirits. Following their advice, he took better care of his health and made clever business decisions. In one instance, a hallucinated voice urged him to seek medical care for his infant son for what turned out to actually be a hernia. Dick's judgment improved. He felt more alive. In a sense, his divine madness drove him saner. Sadly, this did not last. Eventually, the divine spirit abandoned him. Spiritually uh, abandoned and in despair, Dick again attempted suicide. He overdosed on his blood pressure medication and slit his wrists. He then climbed into his car and turned on the engine with the door closed. He hoped that if the overdose and the slitting of the wrists didn't do him in, the carbon monoxide would. His attempts, unfortunately, failed. Did he actually him. do all that? Yes, actually did all of this. <laughs> he apparently vomited up the medication, his wrists coagulated, and the engine stalled. <laughs> so, to crib from John's uh, you know, pervading sentiment these days could be rain and titties, and he'd get hit with a... A dick. With himself. Yeah, with himself. himself, thank you, yes. Wow. <laughs> all right so for the rest of his life uh dick was obsessed with his close encounter with the pink light trying to make sense of it he wrote his commentary which uh, that eight thousand page index of his thoughts became his exegus uh in it he proposed that the source of the pink light may have been god the kgb a satellite aliens an unknown entity he dubbed q a first century christian named thomas with whom he was in telepathic communication the cia a version of himself from a different dimension or possibly his deceased twin sister contacting him from the spirit world uh bullshit on the unspecified intelligence named q thank you Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I told you I gave you a layup here, friend. So oh, I was like, that's Star Trek. Or an Anon. Oh, I guess that too. I appreciate that you went Star Trek first, though, because uh, it worked either way. So, well done. He has to for legal reasons. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Each new theory seemed to telescope outward into further possible theories ad infinitum. Strangely, given the counterculture messaging in his work and the Kafkaesque authoritarians in the Minority Report, Adjustment Team, and Flow My Tears, the policeman said, Dick was also a government informant. (laughs) 
<laughs> no. For what? No, he wasn't. However. For the, the Roman Empire, of course. This was not a formal position. <laughs> As we learned earlier, he was very fond of calling up the cops. He also called up the FBI. <laughs> so he would routinely contact any number of authorities unbidden to accuse fellow writers and academics of being Marxists, alien emissaries, or enemy agents. For example, in 1974, he contacted the FBI to notify them that the Polish author Stanislaw Lem was, in fact, a creation of a team of Soviet writers whose job was to spread anti-American propaganda, presumably via abstruse science fiction. The FBI didn't respond to Dick's claim, but it's worth noting that aside from actually being a real fucking person, Lem was actually a devoted fan of his accuser. Oh, that's so sad. Six months later, unaware of these allegations, Lem actually wrote an essay dismissing all American science fiction authors but PKD. He listed oh. Dick alone as a visionary amongst charlatans. Oh Never meet your so heroes, kids. Sad. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, while Dick never settled on a definitive explanation of what happened to him, he did explain why his divine madness was so captivating. Before the visions, he felt alienated for most of his life, an observer in a strange world. But in 1974, it seemed as if the world changed to accommodate me, so that I was, as a result of this radical change, no longer a stranger here. It became my world, and my anxiety, which tormented me day and night, departed. All of a sudden, I fit in. For a short time, he had a place in the universe. It, referring to the entity he felt had taken over his body, from inside me looked out and saw the world did not compute, and that I and it had been lied to. It denied the reality and power and authenticity of the world, saying, This cannot exist. It cannot exist. It seized me entirely, limiting uh, or lifting me from the limitations of the space-time matrix. It mastered me as, at the same time, I knew that the world around me was cardboard, a fake. Through its power of perception, I saw what really existed, and through its power of no-thought decision, I acted to free myself. It took on, in battle, as a champion of all human spirits in thrall, every evil, every iron-imprisoning thing. <laughs> Again? There is no spoon. <laughs> I, there is. It's not difficult to see why fans of the Matrix might see Dick as a pre-Neo anomaly. Yeah, he's basically just Neo. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I actually had to pull that from. There's a YouTube video of him giving a speech about having gone through this, and that is directly lifted from him just extemporaneously speaking. So you Fantastic. can imagine what he was like at cocktail parties. Following years of drug abuse and this series of mystical experiences in 1974, Dick's work engaged more explicitly with issues of theology, metaphysics, and the nature of reality, as in the novels A Scanner Darkly, Vallis, and The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, which is another one of my favorite titles just in general. Rolls trippingly off the tongue. Uh, he unfortunately passed away in 1982 in Santa Ana, California, at the age of 53 due to complications from a stroke. Following his death, he became widely regarded as a master of imaginative, paranoid fiction in the vein of Franz Kafka and Thomas Pynchon. Ultimately, Dick published more than 40 novels and 121 short stories, as I alluded to, in a career that spanned just 30 years. 
Sadly, he never lived to see one of his books turned into a major film or full-length television series, although he came tantalizingly close. Blade Runner was released three months after his death, which, uh, unfortunately, by which time he was still financially floundering and mentally deteriorating, and uh, the film wouldn't have given him much incentive at all because it was considered a theatrical flop, which only truly found its fan base through home video release, but we digress. So, his posthumous influence, however, has been widespread, leaving a lasting mark on the American pop cultural consciousness. As many as 44 films and television shows are based on his works, including, of course, Blade Runner, Total Recall, which has been adapted twice, Minority Report, Paycheck, A Scanner Darkly, The Adjustment Bureau, Blade Runner 2049, The Man in the High Castle, all of these things. Myriad works that have all escaped out. So... A point that we can conclude on, particularly given the troubled existence that he endured, involves an unfortunate association between mental illness and creativity in the minds of many. From the exploits of Vincent van Gogh to James Joyce, F. Scott Fitzgerald to Heath Ledger, an artist's pain is frequently seen as the necessary wellspring of their brilliance. It's tragic that one person's pain is seen as a necessity to craft enjoyment for others, but does help to recall that for some, the act of creation is their bliss. It is that necessary distraction from the discord of their days which keeps them pressing forward. And if that determination and its outcomes helps others to appreciate and embrace their works, I can't cast aspersions at that rationale. But what I will leave you with are PKD's own thoughts on the postpartum nature of his own creative process, and I'm going to try not to get choked up because it bothers me, but... Uh, What matters to me is the writing, he told Rolling Stone in 1974 during the height of his delirium. The act of manufacturing the novel, because while I'm doing it, at that particular moment, I'm in the world I'm writing about. I apologize, I don't know why this caught me, but uh, it's real to me, completely and utterly. So, when I'm finished and I have to stop and withdraw from that world forever, that destroys me. The men and women have ceased talking. They no longer move, and I'm alone. So. I mean, it makes sense why you get choked up by that. Yeah. 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 Any, any uh, creatives, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's very it's, relatable. It's something that I think we all kind of have a, a fixation on in and of itself, and it's helpful to cognitively reframe those. Uh, through all of this, we do managed to help other people kind of get solace in experiencing those things. So, uh, so we can ensure that countless others experiencing his work can receive a reprieve from that self same isolation in the worlds that he created. So the aims were not in vain, but perhaps his perspective will help someone else find their own meaningful place in the universe. And that to me is one who has sought and subsequently found that particular piece from time to time is a, blessed form of comfort so on this comedy podcast where i go to pieces at random (laughs) but the thing is that you you've you've threatened that this is who you are as a person oh yeah we've known never given anybody any proof well i mean you know at least on air Uh so this is more the payoff i was gonna say it is true because john was present for it like i was supposed to conduct sam's wedding and then i cried through the entire run of their trying to get them to give their vows and they were completely composed the entire oh, time yeah. <laughs> and i'm up there bawling like a small child it's, it's almost so. like they took 
uh, like you sucked all their emotions. <laughs> like yes. you just threw it into you so they didn't have to break composure. And you, uh-huh. just, you, know, you fell on that sword. Uh, Melissa refers to herself as an emotional sponge. So apparently I, I've started to pick that up. But uh, in any event, yeah, it's the uh, first time we've had tears on the podcast, friends. So congratulations. That was bound to happen at some point. But <sighs> Honestly, I, uh, I'm going to come. Well, bless you. Okay. Uh, I think part of this is also having, like, when you feel like you're kind of an outlier yourself and and never really connected with other people, and it's been something that's a barrier between you to feel other people have that same problem, it's something that resonates me, uh, or Mm -hmm. resonates me. It resonates with me very well, so... I apologize for not composing myself there. But oh, yeah, there's no apologies it's, needed. No. It's uh, one of the reasons why I think I connect with a lot of outsider art, if you will, so I can understand. But in any event, do y'all have any guesses about stuff that I may have been fibbing about before I went to pieces? Oh, your tears were a lie. Flow my tears, the policeman said, and they did on this show. So there you are. Some fan service for you folks. <laughs> I swung it so much and missed almost everything that every every nope. shot that I took I missed. Almost. You still got one friend, so you you made <laughs> yeah. it through. So I have no more shots because I took too many. <laughs> Not, I, I'm I'm too drunk. I cannot take any more. I'm cutting myself off. Go home, um, Michael. You're drunk. I said Michael. For me, I, I I'm never done as a fully fledged alcoholic. I I'm never done <laughs> with taking shots. Okay. Um, the examples where he's he projected the roman empire so mm-hmm. the uh kids playground Seeing, was a roman prison uh-huh. uh the pedestrians were in full christian martyrs regular. and all that yes yeah, uh-huh. yeah yeah that that's all bold all, tr- Was that all true? true this okay okay he believed all of these things now whether that actually occurred of course is always open to conjecture but I did want to note it sounded pretty pretentious when he said he didn't travel back in time. Tra- time, time traveled, traveled forward. forward. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, okay there. He also, but. if you have ever encountered, I'm not sure if any of you have watched The Man in the High Castle. Um, no. But the there is. Season, I don't remember it. It's um, in the book. There is actually um, several characters who see into the alternative reality. So there's kind of like two stories running parallel. And uh, so there's a character who is sitting in San Francisco who actually is able to merge into our reality as he's sitting there and he sees the Golden Gate Bridge being constructed. And so he actually places something into his mouth as like a talisman to root him to his reality. And that's what actually trips him full bore. So then he flashes into our universe for a bit. And so there's this weird parallel that runs where they know that there is an alternate reality where the Allies won, and they understand that this is what's happening, and that is what is fictionalized in the book, The Grasshopper Creeps Slowly Through the Grass, or whatever the heck the title of the book is, I forget. Um, And so, very interesting, but he does have a lot of fascination with realities merging in and out, and so it's not shocking that he felt he encountered that himself. Anywho. Long-winded explanation, but uh, anything else that. there, Michael? No, uh, other than that sounded like, ah, uh, what was, there's a game about shooting Nazis and all that other stuff that they actually borrowed, I can't remember the game. It, it, well, yeah, Wolfenstein, thank you, where that was actually one of the spoilers at one of the end of the most recent game or something like that, where they found a connection to 
our reality where the Nazis didn't win. Okay. And uh, I didn't know that that was from. I, I knew that there were they were making allusions to Man in High Castle, okay. but I wasn't sure how similar to the actual source material that was. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. It's been a minute since I've read it, uh, and it's been a minute since I read a lot of these, but uh, once I finished, I, I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in four hours fairly recently, and I was like, oh, this is much better than I remember it. <laughs> so I should probably delve into a PKD here and see what's happening. But uh, Courtney, you got anything for me? Um, was the full-body cast true? Yes, he was stuck in a full-body cast for God. a while. That sucks. And then maybe we kind of already guessed at this, but was the milkshakes a true thing? Yes, the milkshakes were Dang. a true thing. I know. it's it, He's so hyperbolic as a human being in general. God. It's not hard to lie. And did you clarify whether or not those milkshakes brought the boys to the yard? <laughs> I did not, unfortunately. But I can tell you, they most certainly did. They also brought the boys in the house, and then they stayed. Okay. Just, and they were like, damn, it's better than yours. They could teach you. <sighs> Sorry. Just, oh, my God. But One step too he far. He would have charged. He would have charged because he needed the money, but that's beyond the point. Beside broke, the point. Broke fuck. Through the point. You mentioned at one point he had a son. Which of his wives was the unfortunate one to bear his child? Um, He had, <laughs> oh, he had several children, and I oh. didn't go into that because we would have spent a long time running through this. That's, but yeah. that's fair. Uh, I don't recall, and uh, some of this stuff I got from like a very interesting. Um, the Sun UK had a whole thing about Philip K. Dick being a crazy wife murderer, or at least attempting to dispatch them, which I pulled a lot of this from. Where I was like, I had never heard this before in my life. <laughs> so his relationships were fascinating. But okay. Oh wait. Um, speaking of his children, uh, just because I'm thinking Joe Hill. Um, off the top of your head, do you know if any th- any of them became writers? Uh, I don't believe so. I know his daughter has spoken about his work a lot of time, and I think she was one of the ones who is, um, directly quoted in a lot of conversations about Blade Runner when it finally took off, because she was there kind of helping to more or less translate for her dad to Ridley Scott and some of the folks, because he was still a little around the bend at this point. Uh, and of course suffered a stroke to to pass so um but i i don't know that any of them actually are authors so okay yeah all right so here are the 10 count them 10 lies that oh, uh throughout here so you got the first one right off the bat so it was not ray bradbury that he went to high school with it was ursula Le Guin, as we mentioned um so while the theme of us living in a fabricated reality or simulation is very popular in a lot of his works, he is not frequently credited as being the father of the movement. Ah, not right. a lot of folks. I was going to say something about that because uh-huh. <laughs> there's a lot of ph- philosophical discourse on that. Like, I yeah. think "Brain in a Jar" like predates even that century, mm-hmm. like uh, if I recall correctly. And then you also have. Descartes and is like I think therefore I am and to doubt reality mm-hmm. and that was several hundred years before him and 
Yes. I was just I didn't have the I didn't have the balls to call it. Well, out. look at you. And then uh, I fabricated the bulk of the end of uh, Vulcan's hammer here, uh, involving the three different uh, iterations of the Vulcan program, all fighting. There are elements of that in there, and they do have the healer movement was created by Vulcan 2 to stave off Vulcan 3, but all of it taking over people's brains and using them as, you know, rendering them still is something that I threw in there. Well done. Ah. Uh, and uh, so the drug use and human beings being indoctrinated from their youth by this and being pacified essentially is not true. Uh, subsequently, it is also not a uh, source that is listed for either James Cameron for the Terminator or the Wachowski's concept of the Matrix as an inspiration. God damn it. I just drew those parallels myself for years, screaming to people. I was like, this is like Philip K. Dick stuff. Like, <laughs> come on. Look at it. Yeah. Look at it. No one did. So that gets us through four of the lies. Uh, lie number five is that the police did not actually uh, think that uh, Dick had blown up his own uh, safe for uh, insurance. They just thought he was a fucking nutcase. Uh, and they also did not believe that Nancy might have been trying to get some of her things back either. They just wrote him off as a complete, you know, nutter and, and didn't say anything. So that's lies five and six. <laughs> Uh, lie number seven, uh, him attributing his, uh, being tracked by the FBI to his uh, legal woes at having left the country while there was still an ongoing investigation into his home burglary is not something that he thought of. He was just paranoid because he thought aliens were trying to take over his brain and he was seeing alternate realities. Yeah. So he did not care much about having, uh, left while there was an ongoing investigation. Couldn't have cared less. Couldn't be bothered. And now to lie number eight. He, uh, there's no, no one knows why he drank the milkshakes. He didn't say that he was trying to avoid ulcers or gastrointestinal distress. He just had milkshakes and pills. That was his, uh, his particular drug of choice, as it were. See, that got me because I know we, I, uh-huh. I used to take amphetamines for, and they would give me Bad acid reflex. I Do go on. Medically yes, prescribed yeah, amphetamines, course, course, mind course, you. Yeah. Medically, but they would they would give me bad acid reflex if if I drank anything like akin to like orange juice or anything. You're gonna like make that. me cry again, Michael. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> I understand your. I feel your distress. Uh, I feel uh, your distress, and I'm getting hard. I will save uh, my tears for you. So, please. Um, you did get the unknown entity that he dubbed Q as being one of the sources for the pink light. So, congratulations. And then lie number 10 is that he did not ever accuse any of his other uh, famed authors as being alien emissaries. He only <laughs> said they were Marxist or enemy agents. What a guy. Damn. Yes, bless him. He didn't think that there were actual aliens on the planet. He just thought they were trying to infiltrate his brain. So, delightful thing. So, that is all ten of the lies that I had for you in what was a pretty substantively chunky and text-heavy presentation. So, thank you all for bearing with me. Oh, thank you. This is what happens when I'm given a month or so to do research. It winds up being very lengthy. Yeah, you've had time to chunk more in there. Indeed. 
I am not complaining in the slightest. Also, this absolutely fascinating. is a very interesting individual here uh, that, I mean, I could have gone on. There's still, <laughs> I, I only covered the highlights here. So yeah, this could have turned into Harlan Zanders again, and I tried not to do that, so I tried to distill as much as I could in one shot. Well, I liked it. Like the cut of your jib, kid. Well, thank you. That's, I don't think you can say that. I'm just going to have to cry at the end of every episode now, like my sex life. Uh... <laughs> well, it'll be like how Michael cries at the end of every episode after the fact. Indeed. Yes. They hate me and my topic. <laughs> What's my motivation? <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. I wrote such a bad episode. I know better. Oh, it's, see, mine is entirely different. I, mine is always like tears of gratitude. I just cuddle up with Melissa. I'm like, thank you for letting me do this. <laughs> so. It's delightful. Well, uh, since John did this last week, who's who's up next? John, are you gonna are you gonna give us a topic <laughs> next week? Fuck no, birds. We're doing the face. Illuminati part four. No, I'm, this time with feeling. I'm so sad. Still, still <laughs> chunking it out. I'm liking that expression right now. I, I what I chunking have it. what I have is probably gonna be a two parter. I just need to you know. Write it. Hashtag He's working on a twelve-part series. <laughs> well, loving is is what you got. I said, remember that. Chunking is what I got. <laughs> I'm chunking here. I'm chunking here. I'm chunking here. Back where I'm from, guys, we got a little expression. I'm chunking. I'm chunking here. Hey! Welcome to Hoboken. You've never been more happy to chunk. <laughs> I'm with the original chunk. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna chunk. I'm. I'm chunking over <laughs> oh, here. That's no. a, a post-holidays eating. It's delightful. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Courtney, you said something about a, a friend. Uh, Saying that we're famous or something, and and John and I took that to mean depressed. No, we're famous, guys. No, <laughs> do so tell. We were we were having dinner with some friends last night that we don't get to see very often, and somehow it came up, you know, that I do a podcast, and I was like, yeah, you know, we do podcasts, whatever. And Jonah's uncle, who's pretty close in age to us, goes, "What's it called?" And I go, "Oh, it's just a disinformed podcast." And he goes, "Oh my god, you're TikTok famous." And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you've been on my For You page. And I was like, yeah, that's how the algorithm works. You follow me. I follow yeah. this informed. That's how you got that on your page. And he goes, no, you're famous now. All of you, so famous. If only. <laughs> so, if only that's how it worked. Congratulations, everybody. We're famous now. I was going to say Michael's wallet it. says otherwise. but <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want people to treat me differently. I make I make Philip K. Dick's wallet look like a millionaire. Indeed, I was going to say uh, they treat you differently because you hump their legs in public, John. That's just nothing to do with your fame or notoriety. Just yelling about chunking at them. The same reason that they uh, avoid me like the plague because I'm either crying or screaming at people not to fucking talk to me. I can promise you one thing and one thing only, and that's if you give me enough compliments, you'll make me chunk. <laughs> oh, I'm chunking. <laughs> chunking it up oh. well uh ladies and germaphobes thank you for chunking with us this week it was delightful <laughs> and uh i think i have a new tagline will be heil chunk slingers <laughs> oh. i don't wanna thanks i hate it <laughs>
Once you start chunking, you'll never stop. Well, if you do, you'll clean it up. But uh, <laughs> we appreciate you all being here. Naturally, there is a link down in the show notes that will take you to all of our relevant socials so you can see just how famous we're not. And it's a delightful. But uh, Courtney is sustaining us over on the uh, the Talks of Tick. And, of course, on the Tubes of View, we make uh, casual flirtations. You can find all of that stuff there. Go like, subscribe, tell us you love us, and uh, and give us a couple of reasons why we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Do it. You won't. But for the smash disinformed podcast this week. <laughs> Don't you mash that nothing. <laughs> chunk that like chunk button. Chunk that like button. <laughs> smash that chunk button. I was going to say, like or that like that chunk button. Yes, that's <laughs> like, better. Man, I really accidentally woke something up inside of this poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> chunk <laughs> chunked Sloth him wide love open chunk yes uh, poor Destiny's just gonna be hearing about chunking for the next week uh, that was a candy bar back in the late 80s early 90s I'm sure that you can probably still find one contained both nuts and raisins and chocolate strangely enough hmm. uh, strange yeah Nestle was hedging their bets on the uh, raisinettes <laughs> Fair enough. How close right. to copyright infringement could we get with uh, Dunkin' Donuts? Well, since they're no longer Dunkin' Donuts, they're just Wait, Dunkin'. Uh, <laughs> we, we could very easily run with that. So we're just Chunkin' then? And then if you're John, you're Chunkin' D's Nuts. Ooh. All over you your face, neck, and chest. Indeed. And yet again, Heil come Slingers. Uh, and that's going to officially... Wrap it up like a rascally little condom, apparently, for this week. So, so keep on chunking, kids. Works if you work it. But for the Disinformed Podcast, this week, I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Michael. I'm Courtney. And zippity-zoop, we're out of here. Chunk. <laughs>